Well, good morning. Well, I will not be as enthusiastic as the Life Kids video. Uh, I get geeked and jazzed over scripture, but that's a different geek than jazz than five-year-old, eight-year-old Life Kids leader jazz. I'm not wired that way. Praise God for those who are. Um, I don't feel comfortable in the Life Kids area. Uh, one place I feel even more uncomfortable that I cannot stand is a waiting room. If you've ever been to a doctor's office or the hospital, it is by far one of the most unenjoyable places I have ever been. Over the last, hey, we got an amen. <laughs> Over the last couple of years, uh, through 20 years of marriage and raising children, I have had, I would call it the pleasure of sitting in the waiting room on a couple of surgeries for my children, a couple for my wife, and, and I really don't enjoy my time there. We, you, you get these instructions by a nurse, and they say, we want you to head back to this room and this area that we have for you, and we'll call your name, or, or you'll get a buzzer that beeps, or check the TV, depending on what hospital you are. And um, you know, I, I've, I go back there, and, and it's, it's painful, because there's trash TV on, there's nothing really worth watching. Uh, there's awful magazines I don't feel like looking at. There's a puzzle I don't feel like doing. I've even tried to bring stuff that I would like to do to entertain myself, but I find that I, I don't even enjoy that. I can't even open the book that I've brought. I, 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 can't, I, can't, I just can't do it. I find myself with my mind wandering because one thing that I know when I'm in that waiting room is this. Life's going to be a little bit different when I get my name finally called. Um, when this procedure is over... Um, things are going to be a little bit different. Even routine surgeries or procedures can sometimes go sideways. So while I bring books to read, I find my mind beginning to wander. What if this goes wrong? What if this doesn't work out? How am I going to make sure I care for this individual over the next couple of weeks? What will this mean for us moving forward? And I sit, and I wait, and I look up, and only five minutes has gone by. And in fact, it feels like the clock might be even ticking backwards while I'm in there waiting for my number to be called, waiting for my name to be heard, waiting for somebody to just come get me and say, your season of waiting is over, and now we'll begin to proceed. Life is like that, where we have what I would call these waiting room moments, where we're just kind of stuck in this season where we're waiting for the next thing to happen, waiting for our name to be called, and it feels like time just stands still there. It could be very painful seasons. It could be the season where you're waiting on a new job, maybe waiting on a home, waiting on a marriage, waiting on a diagnosis from a doctor, uh, treatments or therapy for you or a loved one that may or may not work. It might be the longing for a child. It might be just the pain of an unfilled womb. It could be the death of a child, an illness of a child, an illness or, or death of a spouse or a parent that comes suddenly. Moments of crisis, moments of uncertainty, where we wonder, what happens next? How do I move forward? What does it look like to move forward? How do I, in even some of these circumstances, even get up tomorrow and face the world and just breathe? And the hard part is, much like the surgical waiting room, these storms or these crises that kind of enter, we, we feel like time has just stopped. And sometimes it even feels like time is just moving backwards. Like we're just, we're not getting anywhere. And I begin to wonder, how long, God, will I be in this place? And much like the waiting room where we sometimes think the doctor forgot about us, we begin to wonder, God, have you forgotten that I'm here? 
How do we find hope in these moments? How do we find hope in a broken world, as we just saw in our video, has, has been broken since Genesis 3? The Advent season is one where we typically, as, a, as churches, will look at different themes of love, hope, joy, peace. As we've been praying and talking about this as a staff over the past couple of months, because your trick-or-treating isn't even done, we're already talking about Christmas. That's the life of ministry, right? Um, we, we began to pray and talk, and we kept coming back to this concept of hope. And we want to take this Advent season, this Christmas season, as we, as we hit December 1, and I'm still in short sleeves and loving it, by the way, as we hit December 1, we want to kind of laser focus in on this concept of hope over the next couple of weeks. How do we have hope in those seasons of waiting, as we're going to talk about today? Next week, we're going to talk about how do we have hope in those seasons of silence, where it feels like we've just been left here and God's forgotten about us. How do we have hope when things come unexpectedly? Because as we're going to look at in a few weeks, if you're married and you're now suddenly pregnant, that's a newsflash. That's kind of an unexpected event, right? How do I navigate and find hope in the unexpected that has maybe thrown life sideways? And then we're going to focus on the fact that this hope that we have in Jesus is a hope that we have for the nations. We are hardwired for hope. Since Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, God infused hope hope into the brokenness of mankind and said, there is one who is coming. And all throughout the Old Testament, it is God reminding us, there is one who is coming. Have hope. He will remedy this. As a young man growing up in the ancient Near East, Joseph has been reminded time and again of this hope that is to come. He is a young man that is betrothed to a young woman named Mary, and he has a storm, a crisis, a dilemma, if you will. Betrothal is a little bit like engagement, but it's different in the ancient Near East than it is today. You see, if you were to get engaged, someone hands you a ring, you're excited, it's all over Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, and, and everyone's just really excited for you. And but here's the thing about engagements. Sometimes they don't, let, they don't result in marriages. Sometimes engagements end. And the ring is given back or the ring is put in a drawer or pawned. A betrothal is a little bit different. You can't just break it off like you would an engagement and say, here's your ring back. A betrothal was a legally binding event just like a marriage. It was the first step in a marriage. And Mary and Joseph are betrothed. And they are betrothed to be married as Joseph prepares a house for Mary. And when he's ready, he'll go and get her. But until now and then, they have legally binding rights. That they are almost like a married couple, except they're not allowed to have sexual union until the time of marriage when that, is, when that season has come. Joseph has a crisis, if you will, because he is betrothed to Mary, and Mary is pregnant. It's a problem. So Joseph has a few options to consider. Child's not mine. I could marry her. People will always wonder, speculate, is it mine? Is it somebody else's? He can have her stoned for adultery drag her out in the street and kill her. I can restore my honor, restore my name, and I can get on with my life because this wasn't my fault. 
He could divorce her. That would be the legal step because they're in a betrothal stage. And he could either divorce her shamefully or quietly. So he's got some options. And in Matthew chapter 1, we're told that Joseph is a just man. And he's also a merciful man because he has decided he will break off the betrothal marriage. He will divorce her quietly so he doesn't shame her. In this crisis moment, Joseph is met in a dream by an angel. Listen to Matthew chapter 1, verse 20 through 23, verses that we hear often during the Christmas season. As he, he being Joseph, considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for what that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so, as Joseph is pondering his options, he is met by an angel who says, Don't be afraid. Take Mary as your wife. The child is not from unfaithfulness. It's from the Holy Spirit. Name the child Jesus. He will save people from their sins. And this fulfills Isaiah 7.14, which Jeannie read earlier. Joseph wakes up and obeys, takes Mary as his wife, names the child Jesus. But here's the question we have to ask ourselves. In a passage that is so often quoted during the Christmas season, why does Isaiah 7.14 bring Joseph comfort and hope during a difficult situation? This morning, I want us to step back And look at Isaiah 7, as we began to earlier in our worship service, and look at the context of this passage and another passage that will bookend Isaiah 7 that are so often looked at during the Christmas season, but we don't really know maybe necessarily why. This morning, I want us to focus in on this as we talk about hope, and here is the big idea this morning. The Christmas season reminds us that in a broken world, hope can be placed and a faithful God. That's our big takeaway I want you to walk home with this morning. That in the Christmas season, not just today, but as we think through December and peer in at the manger, we are reminded that in a broken world, hope can be placed in a faithful God. I can rest trusting in God with my future and my present because he has been faithful in the past to his promises. Isaiah 7. Isaiah is the most quoted prophet in the New Testament. Of all the books in the New Testament that are quoted the most, it's going to be Deuteronomy, the Psalms, and Isaiah. Yet it's one that we don't always jump to because it can be confusing. When Isaiah writes, let's think about the context of this. When Isaiah writes, there's the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel is split into two. After, uh, after Saul is king, you have David, then you have Solomon, and after Solomon dies, the kingdom splits and it remains that way. You have Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Israel has a history of bad king after bad king after bad king after bad king until God says, that's enough. And he sends the Assyrians in to wipe them out and punish them for their disobedience. Judah, on the other hand, kind of rides this roller coaster of good kings and bad kings and good kings and bad kings. And as the kings go, so go the nations. So their obedience to God kind of ebbs and flows along with their kings until God says enough and sends Assyria and the Babylonians in to punish them. 
Isaiah, when he writes, he paints a picture of of God's people being like a rebellious son that simply doesn't want to listen to his father and says, "Um, listen, you are mired in sin and God is going to destroy you, Judah, if you don't repent. God is gracious. Turn to him. But the problem is, before we get to Isaiah 7, they're just mired in sin. They call good evil and evil good, so much so that Isaiah says, you guys are worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. That's the context we're walking into in Isaiah 7. And Isaiah says, listen, you can fix this in one of two ways. You could try to be more religious. It ain't going to work. Or you can turn to God and repent and obey him and submit, and he will cleanse you because of his graciousness. By the time you get to Isaiah 7, Isaiah has told Judah that you are like God's vineyard that's been planted, and all you're producing are sour, bitter grapes. And he's going to unplant you, and he's going to judge you, and it's going to be right. But before that, he gives them a chance to repent and infuse hope into this difficult situation. Here's the first thing I want us to think about when we're thinking about Isaiah this morning and thinking about hope, and it's this. The brokenness of this world, it provides us with moments of uncertainty where we must decide if we're going to trust God or something else as we wait for the events to unfold. That's where Isaiah and his people are right now. We're in this crisis. We're in the waiting room. We're in this in-between. Are we going to turn to God or not in these moments of uncertainty that we're about to see unfold in Isaiah 7 are moments where Israel and their king or Judah and their king are met with an opportunity to say, listen, are you going to trust God, the bringer of hope in these situations or something else? We're in Isaiah chapter 7. I would encourage you to open your Bibles or your phones or your tablets and follow along. Jeannie earlier has read the first 15 verses, so we're just going to kind of jump in and talk about what's going on in these verses. In the first couple of verses, what we know is this. Trouble is on the horizon because the king of Syria, or your Bibles might say Aram, that is King Rezin, is angry with Judah. And so is King Pekah of Israel. They're both angry with Judah. And if you were to read 2 Chronicles 28, what you would find out is this. Both King Rezin and King Pekah have both on separate occasions gone down to Judah and beat them up. And now they're getting together and they want to walk down to Judah and beat them up together. And Judah is scared because not only does Syria and Israel want to walk down and beat them up, but they got a new best friend named Egypt. And Egypt's going to come in and beat them up as well. And in their place, verse 6, they said, we're going to go down there, we're going to beat them up, and we're going to kick the king off the throne and put our own king in its place, a puppet king, so that way Judah will band forces with us and can go help us beat up Assyria, the new bully on the playground. So that's the context that we have here. Assyria is this bully on the playground. Judah's trying to stay neutral. Israel, Syria, and Egypt said, we've had enough. We're going to go beat up Assyria. Judah, you're going to join us. Judah says no, and they said, fine, we'll beat you up first and make you come fight us with Assyria. 
In verse 2, as the armies are marching on Judah, the house of David, we're told, is shaking like trees shaking in the wind. You're like the kid where the recess bell is about to ring, and you know the bully's looking for you in about 10 minutes, right? You're kind of just shaking, or maybe you were the bully, all right? Let me just tell you, it wasn't fun 10 minutes before recess that the bully was looking after you, all right? And so 10 minutes, you're shaking, right? So they're shaking because Judah knows that Israel and Syria and Egypt are coming for them. And the powers in Assyria are growing bigger. What are we going to do? In verse 3, he says this. God says, listen, Isaiah, take your son and go to King Ahaz and tell them, don't be afraid of Syria. Don't be afraid of Israel. They're like two sticks on a fire that are getting ready to be burnt out. They're not going to do anything. They're all talk and no action. They formed an alliance, verse 6 and 7, but it's not going to work. But for Judah right now, the future looks scary. It looks uncertain. And in verse 9, they're met with the reality. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramallah. If you are not firm in your faith, you will not be firm at all. So the bullies are running down on Judah. And God says this in the midst of a very anxious, tentious, crisis moment. Will you trust me? This is really the key to the whole moment of this crisis. This is really the key to the whole moment of every crisis that walks into your life. The ones both expected and unexpected. Those crises that erupt at 4 o'clock on a Thursday afternoon that suddenly throw life sideways. God leans in and simply says, Do you trust me? And he provides a ray of hope in the midst of difficulty. Will you be faithful to me in this present crisis? In verses 10 through 12, as Jeannie had read, the Lord says to Ahaz, Ask for a sign of the Lord. Ask, God says, and I'll show you you can trust me. And Ahaz in these verses appears to be spiritual. says, No, 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 I won't put the Lord our God to a test. He's actually quoting from Deuteronomy 6, but he's quoting it wrong. In Deuteronomy 6, God's people are angry with God, and they've simply said, listen, God, you don't care about us. You don't give a rip about us. Show us a sign that you really care about us. And God says, don't put me to the test. I care about you. And so Ahaz quotes this to seem spiritual, but he's saying, Listen, I don't want to put God to the test, but God has invited him in this moment. But there's a reason Ahaz doesn't want to put God to the test. He's already made a deal with Assyria. Israel and Syria, or he's already made it with Assyria. Israel, Syria, and Egypt are bearing down. Judah and the king have gone up to Assyria and said, Will you help me in this moment? I want you to think about this for a second. In this moment of crisis that is facing God's people, the house of David, King Ahaz abandons all conviction because he doesn't think God truly cares. And he puts his trust and his faith in people that are going to let him down. In moments of uncertainty and crisis in our own lives, if we're not careful, we'll abandon conviction in God. We'll begin to question, God, do you really care? God, do you, are you really here in this moment? Have you forgotten me 
in the waiting room. We begin to abandon God's perspective in these moments. And we begin to rely on our own wisdom in these moments. And yet our wisdom is foolishness to God. And in these moments of, of crisis, if we're not careful, we'll begin to abandon convictions and think, God doesn't care. God's not involved. God has abandoned me. And I'll begin to look to something other than God to fulfill me, to comfort me, and to place my hope. And even possibly in the process, as the king of Judah does here, trust people or things that are harmful to me because I just don't know where else to turn. Because I'm going to tell you something. What unfolds in 7, 8, and 9 is this. Judah, you want to go make friends with Assyria. That's fine. They're going to let you down and turn on you. You should have placed your hope in the rock that is God. Ahaz is rejecting God, turning to Assyria. What will this mean for the house of David in verse 13? In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God had made a promise to David and said, there will be one from your throne, who sit, one from your line who sits on the throne forever. And Ahaz from the line of David has said, I don't want to trust in you anymore, God. I want to place my hope somewhere else. I want to place it in Assyria. What will this mean for God's people? What will God do in this circumstance? Because he has every right to punish their disobedience. It's here. That we're met in verse 14 with a verse that we so often take refuge in during Christmas. The Lord himself will give you a sign. You don't want one? I'm going to give you one. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. In the midst of the wreckage of poor decision-making by King Ahaz, God stops in and says, I have not abandoned you even in the midst of your painful, disobedient circumstances. Turn to me, I have not abandoned you. He infuses hope into a situation that's about to go really sideways. Ask for a sign. You don't want one. In my mercy and grace, I'm going to give you one. A virgin will have a child, and you'll call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. What does he mean by virgin? Because this Hebrew word carries a lot of controversy. Some will say it means just a young woman who has a child. Other contexts, it can be used for a young woman of of puberty who can have a child but has not had sex. And the context that this is being used, as it's been used in other places, is a young woman who has reached puberty can have a child but hasn't had sex, has not had relations, and so is a virgin, is someone who has not had sexual intercourse, and yet is going to be with a child. Who is this child? Well, it's not the son that he talked about earlier in Isaiah. He's not talking about Isaiah's son. In Isaiah chapter 8, verse 2, he's going to talk about Isaiah's other son. He's not talking about either one of these sons. He's talking about a different son, which allows us to peer in and say simply in Christmas fashion, what child is this? What son? What is this God with us? He says in verse 15, before this child matures, he will be eating curds and honey. He'll be, he'll be growing up in a time of depression and poverty and oppression. He'll be in a, in a very simple diet because they don't have anything. Much like is happening when Rome takes over and Joseph and Mary are betrothed. We enter the Christmas season and we look out on the horizon of our own country. And I don't like to get political from this pulpit, and I, and I won't. Because our hope is placed in Jesus Christ and nothing else, not in man. But as we look out at the, the, the climate of our world, of our country, 
what we see is this. We are met still yet again with political instability in our own land. We look out into the horizon of countries around us, and yet again we see another threat growing, and it's just a different name, but same, same, it's like the same song, different verse, right? Different name, same circumstances. What are they going to do? We look out at national threats of terrorism. We look in our own country and see, see civil upheaval that continues to rise and grow and unrest in our land, and we see brokenness all around us, and then we kind of peer back into our own neighborhoods, and we see the brokenness we come into contact every day in our work environments, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, in our own homes, because we are broken from within and bent away from God. And we have to ask ourselves, where can we find hope in a world that just seems every Christmas to be going more and more and more spiraling out of control? We peer back in December, we peel back the curtain, and we're reminded that our hope is not placed in man, it's not placed in the world powers around us, but we peer back the curtain and we, we pull it back, and we dust off the Christmas songs and we sing and we bear witness and confess, O come, O come, Emmanuel, God with us. That's where our hope is placed because this is a God who has not abandoned his people. He is the fulfiller of his promises. He has come. He will come again. And he is a beacon of, ray, a beacon of light, a ray of hope as we peer this Christmas and each Christmas into the manger. The big picture that actually runs from Isaiah 7 to Isaiah 39 is this. In moments of crisis, whom will you trust? The brokenness of this world will provide you with moments of uncertainty. And you have to ask yourself, will you trust in God or in something else as the events unfold? And what God shows us as we're going to continue into this passage is this. You can very certainly place your trust in him and your hope in him. Because he is a God who is faithful to his word. Second thing I want us to think about, and we're going to kind of fast forward and kind of skim. I would encourage you, if you haven't read Isaiah 7, 8, and 9 in a while, go back and read it this week. Because we're going to see two very familiar Christmas passages bookend where we are today. And I'm going to just race through chapters, the rest of chapter 7 and 8 so we can jump into 9 here. But the thing that I want us to think about as I just kind of gloss over 7 and 8 is this. During times of uncertainty, we need to remember that the future rests in the hands of Emmanuel. It rests in the hands of God with us. After giving a sign that, that the big picture that, hey, King Ahaz, you've, you've blown it here and put your trust in Assyria, but don't worry, God has not abandoned his people. He will be gracious. He will be merciful. Two years later, Tiglath-Pileser of Assyria will come in and wipe out Syria He'll wipe out Israel just like God has promised here in Isaiah 7. But Ahaz's sinful choices of partnering with Assyria have consequences. And throughout the rest of chapter 7, what God shows Israel is this, or shows Judah is this. Sorry, I use them interchangeably. It's Judah. Judah, you've placed your faith in Assyria. Assyria will beat up the bullies who are picking on you. But when they're done, they in Egypt are going to walk into your backyard and beat you up next. That's the rest of chapter 7 and 8. They will be like flies and bees swarming all over the place. And they're going to kick your butt. Because you've trusted in them and not God. The armies of these nations will rise and blanket your land. And when chapter 8 opens, 
were met with one of Isaiah's other sons, Mahir Shalau Hashbaz. Name your child that and say it six times quick. Names have meanings. In chapter 8, God says, Isaiah, before Mahir Shalau Hashbaz reaches an age, Syria will be destroyed. They're not going to stand before that child's even able to speak. But don't get excited because when Assyria's done beating them up, they're coming your way. Because you trusted in the Euphrates, you trusted in Assyria, and not in the gentle waters of Shiloh, the gentle waters of God. But, Isaiah 8.8, 8, it will sweep on into Judah, it's talking about Assyria, it will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, they're going to come in and they're going to beat you up, and its outspread wings will fill the breath of your land, O Emmanuel. You see the word Emmanuel again. Even though things are getting darker, even though Assyria is going to run wild all over you, this is Emmanuel's land, and their reign will not last. You put your hand, future into the hands of sinful men, and they're going to let you down, God tells them. And you should have put it in the hands of Emmanuel, God with us, because he holds the future in his hands. We fast forward to chapter 9. And what we're told is during times of uncertainty, we must remember that God is faithful to his promises. Chapter 8 closes, and Isaiah is reminded that God sits on his holy throne. He's in the sanctuary. He is the place where we're to put our trust, but those who don't put their trust in him, he's not a ray of hope. He's a stumbling block. And those who are stumbling by not placing their trust in him are going to plunge deeper and deeper and deeper into darkness, he tells us in the beginning of Isaiah chapter 9. That those who are not putting their trust in God will plunge deeper and deeper into darkness. But there is hope. Isaiah 9, verse 2, read along with me. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior and battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Now listen to verse 6. You may have heard this before. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Chapter 7, verse 1, and chapter 9, verse 7 are kind of the bookends of this entire event. The bullies are coming. And Ahaz puts his trust in something other than God in this time of uncertainty. And God says, listen, you've disobeyed, but I'm not going to forget you. Emmanuel is coming. And you're going to be punished for your disobedience, but I have not forgotten you. Emmanuel is coming. And you come to chapter 9 and we said, listen, those who have not placed their trust in God, the darkness is just going to keep piling on. But in the midst of this, God will penetrate the darkness. He will deliver and shine into the darkness of humanity. 
There's going to be gladness when there should be pain because Assyria is coming. There's going to be joy to the world because a king is coming, a king that will free them, a king that will not answer to tyranny with more tyranny, but a king that will come and instead of bringing tyranny will bring joy because this royal child is a child who will be divine and he will draw us into his presence. And you get to chapter 9, verse 6, into this moment of uncertainty, and you get to chapter 9, verse 6, and it's a birth announcement. Like you would send when you're going to have a child. It's a birth announcement. God says, don't worry that you put your faith in something other than God, because God will be faithful to his promises when you turn to him. He will be faithful to his word. He provides hope in this situation. And he says, a king is coming. And when he peels back the curtain to show us that king, he doesn't show us this man with a granite chin and rippling biceps and long flowing locks who's ready just to take on the world. He doesn't show us the painted face of of a warrior who's ready to go on and take on the armies of whoever comes and and his way. He peels back the curtain and says, the king is coming. It's a child. Born. He's a wonderful counselor. Mighty God. He will be the perfect advisor. He will be eternal. He will have no end to his reign. He will sit on the throne of David forever, just like he had promised in 2 Samuel 7. God is not abandoning his people. This will be deity. As I thought about this passage, I'm drawn to John chapter 1. As he talks about the darkness going deeper and deeper and bringing light into the darkness, I'm drawn to John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Listen to verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. And you fast forward to verse 9. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John opens by talking about in the beginning, taking this Genesis intro, but he's also tying us back to Isaiah. As the darkness has gotten deeper and deeper, the light penetrates the darkness. Here is the one we've been waiting for. God fulfills his promises. So you're Joseph. Back to the beginning. Let's tie a bow on this in a nice Christmas theme. And you are betrothed to a woman who now has a child, and it's not yours. What gives you pause to say, all right, God, I'll walk in obedience? The angel gives him one verse of Scripture that we're told. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. God peels back the curtain and says, Joseph, the promises I made in Isaiah when my people were not walking in obedience to me, I've not abandoned them. He peels back the curtain and says, in a broken world, in times of crisis, 
in times of you don't know what's next, in times of you don't know how to even breathe. I am Emmanuel, God with us. This Christmas season, as you find yourself in a broken world, maybe in a time of crisis, maybe in a time of I don't know what's next, you're reminded like Ahaz that God is faithful to his word. You're reminded like Joseph was that God is faithful to his word. And I pray that this December that you can lean forward, peer into the manger, and celebrate hope. Hope not found in man, not found in a better job, not found in a political election, not found in, in getting my agendas met, but hope found in a God who has proved time and time and time again he is faithful to his word. I grew up playing baseball, got to play in a small school in college. What I know about baseball is this. If you can get a hit one out of every three times, you're considered a stud. 33% of the time you get it right, you're a stud. God ain't batting 33%. He's batting 1,000. And because of that, I can confidently walk in obedience with my eyes fixed on him because he is faithful every single time. This broken world provides you with moments of uncertainty where you're going to need to decide, are you going to trust in God or something else? As the events unfold, sometimes very slowly. Isaiah reminds us that our future rests in the hands of Emmanuel. No matter how bad it gets, God is in control. This is his land and his people. And because of that, I can look into God's word and see that this is a God who is faithful to his promises, has not abandoned his people, and he is with us, and I can walk forward knowing he is there. I want to give you just quick, really quick, three things to kind of take away that I would encourage you to be thinking about as I've been challenged myself as I read through Isaiah and think about the beginning of this Christmas season. First is this. Times of difficulty, they're not fun. But they are special invitations that God gives you and me to place our hope and trust in him during these seasons. It would be easy for us to wag our finger at Ahaz and go, you're a clown, man. Why did you trust in something other than God? And then I'm reminded that I can be more like Ahaz than I care to admit. That there are moments that I have turned to things other than God to think this will get me through. And they all turn up like the Assyrians, empty with broken promises. God invites you in these moments of difficulty to lean in as he invited Judah in to say, trust me as I draw you closer to me in obedience and love. Second, I would like you to think about this. God provides hope to the believer. As we see in God's word, his promises are realized and fulfilled even when God's people aren't at their best. Ahaz was in complete disobedience to God in Isaiah 7. And yet God remained faithful to his word in 2 Samuel 7. Because he is patient, he is gracious, he is merciful. In his glory he is working out his plan. You have made, maybe have taken some missteps in the past where you have placed your faith in places other than God. He is gracious, he is merciful, he is patient. And he lovingly works to draw you back 
Go to him in, in confession. Go to him humbly. Because where man fails and everything we put in our trust in outside of God fails, God always succeeds. And finally, I want to say a word to you if you're here today and you don't consider yourself a believer in Jesus Christ. Glad that you're here during this Christmas season where we're going to talk unashamedly, as we will every Sunday, about Christ and who He is and our hope placed in Him. But you're wondering, okay, where's my hope? You keep talking about hope placed in God, hope placed in Christ, but I don't, I don't know that I agree of who Christ is. I don't know if I know who God is. I want you to see that even in the midst of choices that you've been making, just like with Ahaz, God invites special opportunities for people to be drawn back to Him and to turn to Him even when they're not making the best of choices. Even after Ahaz had said, I will partner with Assyria, God in His grace still left the door open for Ahaz to repent and to turn and to come to God as he was waiting with arms wide open in His grace and His mercy and His love. I say this because if you consider yourself not a Christian as you're here today, I want to encourage you to see that just like with Ahaz, God is waiting with the door open, arms open, to welcome you in if you turn to him through the finished work of this Christ child that we celebrate this December. And that through the finished work of Jesus Christ, you can have a, a secure hope in him, a life that is rooted in him, a life where the brokenness between you and the creator God can be healed and made right. If you're here today and you're thinking, man, I have made bad choice after bad choice after bad choice. You are not too far gone or beyond God's grace and His mercy. It's there for you. And I would implore you to keep coming during this Christmas season as you hear us celebrate this Christ child, this Christ Emmanuel with us, who came to walk in perfect obedience to the Father so He can take our place in the cross and pay for our sins. Each of us, whether we consider ourselves believers or not, are invited this Christmas season to peer into the manger and see the child and celebrate the child who brings peace between God and man as he moves toward the cross. If you're here today and don't know Christ, I implore you, be reconciled to this Christ child. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for opportunity that we have to just celebrate who you are and what you have done. Lord, Isaiah 7, 8, and 9, and Assyria running down on armies, Syria and in, in Egypt, in, in, in alliances, may seem like an odd place to start for Christmas. Yet we're reminded that these verses that we take so much comfort in, we're rooted in a context of darkness, we're rooted in a context of hopelessness, we're rooted in a context of brokenness, where God simply looked at his people and said, I have not abandoned you. I have not forgotten you. I am a God who is true to my word. I am the covenant-keeping God. Lord, we can shake our head at Judah for not turning to you. And yet, Lord, we confess the many moments where we have looked to somebody or something other than you for hope and for fulfillment. Lord, we pray that this December, as we navigate the end of 2019 and 2020 and all its uncertainties is on the horizon, Lord, as we walk through times of uncertainty and unrest globally, nationally, in our backyard, in our own hearts, in our own homes. Lord, we pause and we see hope, not in me thinking better, thinking smarter, trying harder, 
we pause because we see hope in the one who penetrated the darkness of our souls, the Christ child. And we pray that this December, this Advent, this Christmas season, we can find rest, we can find hope for the weary at the manger. We pray all this in your son's glorious name. Amen.